Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, it's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Lizzie No is here. She sure is. And so is Cindy Howes. It is me. Hey, Cindy. Hello. We are here, hanging out. Welcome. We have Will Chef on the pod today. A monumental occasion. Uh, we've got things to do before we get there, so listen up. Um... First of all, if you are not on our monthly newsletter, I encourage you to sign up for it. You can do that at basicfolk.com. You can follow us on social media, not on TikTok, but on everything else, at Basic Folk Pod. We are a listener-supported operation, and you can make a contribution, basicfolk.com slash donate. We are on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find us on the SiriusXM app. We're doing things. We're alive. You know what we haven't done that I feel is the logical next step Mm -hmm. is um, a Times Square billboard. Mm. Don't you feel like everyone and their mother has a Times Square billboard these days? And like, why not us? We're so cute. Totally. Like we, you can tell we drink a lot of water. We moisturize. Yes. We go to the dermatologist. Mm -hmm. I don't, but, but, but I'm with you spiritually there. I go enough for both of us. Yes. And I wear enough sunscreen for not only the both of us, but for all of our listeners. Wow. So this is our pitch for our billboard. And if anyone wants to donate a Times Square billboard-sized donation so we can get that happening, okay. that would be much appreciated. Also, I know what I want to put on uh, the billboard. I want to put... Tell me. Basic Folk with Cindy Howes and Lizzie No, America's Gatekeepers. <gasps> we are America's Gatekeepers. I feel weird that we're revealing that um, publicly. I mean, it's the type of thing that whisper networks have been talking about. Like, mm. people are like, "Why can't I make it in the music industry?" And like, and then they're like, "Well, ugh, the elephant in the room is like, you haven't like kissed Lizzie and Cindy's ass, right? Collective ass, and like that's why you'll never get a chance in this town." Uh, I thrive on that kind of interaction. You know, mm-hmm. wine and dine me, send me. A tote bag. Send me a yes. bobblehead of you. I love it. Yeah, I require actually a lot of bribery um, and compliments. For me, it's all about the compliments, and they need to be specific. Like, it's not enough to be like, "You're so pretty." You like, you have to like say something very specific about like my looks, my personality, my music. Like, it has to be like a well researched compliment. Mm, like. Uh, you don't even seem like you went to Stanford because you're so cool. Okay, yeah, that kind of creeps me out. But yes, that is the, the category. <laughs> it's a little too much. It's a little too much. It's a TM, TMI, 
of compliments. What else is happening? What else is happening? I'm heading out to California soon to play the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. Um, I am starting some therapy for my depression. Go me. Hooray! Trying to work on my mental health. Yeah! Yeah. Thank you for clapping. It's hard to heal. I want everyone who is mentally ill and listening to this to know you're not alone. Me too. It sucks. If you, like, woke up this morning, that is a victory. Mm. What's going on with you, Cindy? How's your new puppy? The new puppy is good. I took her to the gym with my Mm -hmm. trainer and my trainer. How cute. She was pretty good. She peed twice in the gym. In the gym. gym, But it was wooden floors. But they have those bleach wipes. That's fine. I brought, you know, I brought the urine spray. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to keep her out of the garden. So if any listeners have any hot tips... Um, what else can I say about the puppy? She's really beautiful, and I have already scheduled um, times of the day when I would like to receive photos of a puppy. Yes. Um, this is like a mental health hack that I have employed from time to time. Like, if you know you're having, you're going to have, like, a really hard day, or, like, for me, it's, like, right after my, like, intense therapy appointment... I was like, Cindy, at 3.30, please text me photos of your puppy so that as I'm walking out of the therapy office, like I can receive photos of an adorable puppy and know that life is worth living. Totally. It's it's insane. That's a free tip. I shouldn't say insane. It's wild how uh, <laughs> <laughs> how therapeutic a little puppy can be. Should I keep that part in when I was like... Please. Uh, okay, I'll keep in. Please keep it in. Yeah. Leave it in. Because we're, you know, we're all learning here about words yeah. that you shouldn't say. I say insane because I'm reclaiming it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> because I am actually <laughs> insane. <laughs> you posted something on Instagram that has truly rocked my world the past few days. Whoa. Buffalo Nichols played at uh, the XPN Fest in Philly. Such a great festival. I love that festival. Me too. Um, Mm -hmm. So your friend and mine, Buffalo Nichols, a.k.a. Carl Nichols. um, What's up, Carl? He played a set. And um, Lizzie, do you want to do you want to share it or should I try to like stumble through it? Okay, I will share what what I think you're talking about, which is that he Buffalo Nichols got up at the end of his set and he was like, it's really great to be here. Thanks to XPN for having me. Um, you know, I guess I'm proud to be one of a few black men here. Usually it's just me and Joni Mitchell. Mm. And people were like, what? And he was like, do you not remember the times that she has done blackface? Because it's like more than once. Um, and that really made me feel happy to hear. Not that that happened, not that she did that, but the fact that, like, I feel like in Americana right now, there's this thing where since 2020, there's been this, like, big effort to include more Black artists in the genre, but we're kind of, like, still supposed to, like, be very nice. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying, like, Black artists are being held at gunpoint, but I, a lot of audience members maybe some some gatekeepers I won't name are like very uncomfortable with like black and queer artists being like very outspoken 
about injustice and like you're not supposed to talk badly about any of the heroes um and like if someone has become like a revered elder in the community it's sort of off limits to talk bad about them but i think that like if you love and respect people and you love and respect the genre like you should really like talk shit about the stuff that's not cool um so we can all be better so i appreciate buffalo nickels for that carl you're my hero Plus, it's also, like, very funny. Like, it's so fucking funny. Like, when you look at the her dumb blackface pictures, like, Joni Mitchell, songwriting genius, like, that was not cool that she did that, and it and she looked stupid mm. in blackface. Yeah. So, like, it's okay to tease someone who did something stupid. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I agree. I like what you said. And I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing your thoughts oh, on yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Listen, if I get, like, rich and successful and I start doing offensive things, like please by all means like roast me Mm. you know like if you're not teasing me when i do dumb shit you're not my friend that's so true i'm like not great at that as a friend (laughs) (laughs) like pointing out people's like hey you're doing well i'm learning my wife is actually really good at it so like i'm trying it with her yeah i'm trying to like what's her secret (sighs) she's like a, a fucking angel from from the heavens that we know I don't know. She just is like very direct and I'm like not direct at all. Uh, but mm. I'm getting so much better. And I think like you're totally right that f- good friends do point out when you're doing something shitty, you know. But yeah. it's just like I'm afraid that like I don't know if it's like abandonment issues or whatever, but I'm just afraid that like could be that that friend is going to be like, fuck you. I'm out of here, which has happened, you know. Yeah. Oh my gosh, let's go back to pre- preschool when, <laughs> let's go back to kindergarten and first grade where friends abandoned me, you know. Cindy. Yeah. That's terrible. But yeah, you can do it. I believe in you. We can become direct. We can be the change. Mm. Also, there's like the patriarchy and stuff that's like right. telling women not to be direct. Yeah. I don't have any more time for that. Mm. And it sometimes catches people very much off guard because it like doesn't get me upset. Like if if something happens and I'm like, "Mm, I didn't love that. Here's why. Here's what I think we should do. People are often give you that look of like, are you so upset? Are you freaking out? And I'm like, I'm not freaking out. I'm just letting you know I didn't like that. It's very disarming as a woman. (laughs) Right. But it's also like. You know, I've learned a lot in terms of like in in like a professional setting that like being direct, mm-hmm. it's like not personal, you know, but if yes. I could if I could take that and apply it to personal situations, it would be very helpful. I think you'll get there. OK. OK, this has been wonderful. Do you want to talk about Will Chef? Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to talk about Will Chef. So my conversation with Will is one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had for the podcast. Um, Will Chef grew up on the campus of a boarding school in New Hampshire. His parents were educators and very into music. And as a baby, Will had this like near-death illness um, that necessitated a tracheotomy. And wow. he was like always aware as a kid that he was sickly and that he was different and that he was a little bit uncomfortable in his body. Um So that feeling of being, like, apart from other kids is something that started from a very young age. Mm. Um, 
he spent a lot of time in the woods being in awe of nature and nature to him became like the reality of God. He went to Catholic church and didn't really feel the spiritual transcendent vibe. He felt that in nature. So Mm. these are kind of the seeds of creativity that are going to come into blossom later. Um, In high school, he befriended two other young musicians. And even though they split apart for college, they reunited in Austin, Texas afterward and became the renowned like folk rock band Ockerville River. So many people meet buddies in high school and say to themselves, like, we're going to make a band and we're going to make it. But Will and his friends actually did it, which is fascinating to me because um, it's really unusual to build your adult life um, and your career around like a childhood dream and a childhood friend group. So we talked a bit about that, but I really didn't want to spend too much time talking about Ockerville River. They have nine critically acclaimed albums, millions of fans, and you can read about them anywhere. Um, what I wanted to know is like how those years of touring relentlessly, um, changing lineups, recording a bunch of albums, turned Will into the songwriter that he is now um, and the producer that he is now. So he set out to record this solo album, Nothing Special, with the idea that it was going to be his first project under his own name and he was going to try to remove a lot of ego from the process. He was going to try to like make the album that like the most mature adult self would make. Um, and that's what we spent the bulk of our time talking about. He uh, draws a lot of calm and uh, awareness from uh, meditation. He's very much, um, he places a high value on like being connected to the natural world and you hear that all over the album. It's such a gorgeous album, even though it's called Nothing Special. Mm. I think our listeners are going to really love it. It has just as much um, transcendent soundscape as it does um, lyrical storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I think people are just going to really be blessed by this record. Oh, great. Um, all right, let's get into a track from Will's new album. This, in fact, is the title track. Nothing special. And then we'll get to our conversation with Will Chef and Lizzie No on Basic Folk. It's once upon a time I rode with a friend of mine Side by side on the conqueror's route We were set in our designs We were wasted on white wine And our fine satin jackets hung loose We triumphed and we lost, but we knew it any cost. There was treasure we claw our way to, and we'd know by the gleam we had seen inside some dream that was beamed through our boyhood bedrooms when we were nothing special. I am here with Will Chef. Will, thank you for joining us on Basic Folk today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for making the time. I know you're you're right in the middle of touring, right? Something like that. Oh yeah. I have been on the road a ton. 
Okay, can you please take us back to New Hampshire, where you grew up? Please close your eyes and try to imagine the sounds of your childhood. What does it sound like? I mean, I know what my town sounds like because it still sounds that way. Um, I grew up in this, it was an idyllic sort of a small town situation. My parents had um, met in the Boston area and they had, they were both sort of struggling school teachers and nothing was quite working out for them. They weren't very happy where they were at. And my mother comes from like a long line of New England boarding school educators, very like romantic dead poet society type thing, you know? Um, and oh yeah that was my upbringing as well yeah so in in fact like my grandfather was a headmaster his grandfather was a headmaster in this sort of mm-hmm. nepotistic way he had passed it along to you know just ridiculous stuff like that um and i had a s- upbringing very similar to my mom which i'll get into so they my mother said why don't we try our luck at some new england boarding school like the kind that i grew up on so they took a chance and they went out to this tiny little town called Meriden, New Hampshire, population about 500. Um, and that's where I was raised um, in a dorm with in a girl's dorm. And we ate every meal in the cafeteria. And in the summer, our house got twice as big because all the girls would leave. And so suddenly we had all of these secret. We knew all the secret passageways on the school. We knew how to sneak into the pool, how to sneak into the hockey rink. You know, how to sneak into the um, place where they kept all the big landscaping things and we'd get in them and pretend we were in Star Wars spaceships. And so it was a kind of a idyllic childhood, but it was also a lot of darkness there, too, because I had been I was an oldest child and I had been very sick. My parents had tried to have a kid and they had uh, my mother had miscarried. And then when I was born, it was a really difficult birth. Then they took me home and then about um, a year and a half. After I'd been home, I developed a problem where my windpipe basically became almost swollen shut. And so they had to cut a hole in my throat and put a tube down into my lungs. And the doctors said that it would have to be there till I was 12. And that whole process was very life-threatening and stuff in general. So the upshot of all of that is that because of all of those medical woes, I I forgot to walk. I like had been learning to walk, but then I got the tube in my throat and I, I forgot how to walk and I had to be, relearn how to walk. So I had a lot of physical awkwardness. And growing up in a... My town was this kind of like split of people who would come to the school to teach and then like, you know, sort of towny kids who had been there forever and it was very athletic and it was the eighties and just this kid who couldn't really, you know, really bad vision. I couldn't see, I, I had a super bad asthma. I was just this like sickly child. <laughs> so it was this odd mix of living in this sort of idyllic space. And I think, you know, being raised Catholic, I, I, ha- I very much like spiritually imprinted on nature and God and, And it was this kind of like, there was this kind of glowing magical quality to my childhood, but also there was just this relentless bullying aspect of my childhood and this very like physically difficult relationship with my body and this awareness of like what my parents had gone through emotionally, you know, bringing me up. So it was this kind of an odd mixture of like 
paradise and kind of weird psychological unhappiness mixed together. I'm sure you don't remember that incident, but you grew up with people around you, adults in your life, talking about that near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Do you think that as a result, you had kind of a heightened awareness of mortality from a young age? Like as a little kid, were you thinking about Mm. death more than other kids? Well, I definitely had a sense of, you know, I, I used to draw a lot and I would draw myself like kids do. And, you know, you just draw your eyes and nose and mouth and ears and stuff. And I would always draw my tracheotomy scar. Like it was like, I was very aware that this was like this big feature of who I was to some degree. I don't know if I, when I was quite young, if I had an awareness of death, but I certainly had an awareness of sort of fragility. And I think I had it because I was really fragile and in e- I was I would always was always in and out of the hospital. I don't know why. I would go to the hospital and um, they would pull out my file and it was like the size of a phone book and everybody would have a good laugh. So I was constantly having to like get rushed. To the- I have many memories of like being rushed to the emergency room and and many memories of like medical procedures and injections and stuff like that. So I don't I didn't really connect that with death, but I do know that when I was about um, twelve. I had this moment lying in bed at night where I just, I think this is maybe not uncommon. I just started thinking about death and being dead forever and being gone forever. And probably it was the next day that I went down to tell my parents and talk to, talk to them about like this thought that I'd had. And I just freaked out and I was crying hysterically and I couldn't even talk. And I, my father it was just holding me as I was just sobbing. And so they actually got me a therapist. So I went into therapy when I was 12 because they were so disturbed by this. Um, and the therapist actually taught me um, like a version of TM. So that was when I got introduced to meditation and stuff like that. So, wow, that is mm-hmm. so interesting. I feel like, I mean, other than kids who are raised in Buddhist families, like it is so unusual to hear about an American kid getting into meditation that young. It must have had like such a huge impact on how your brain formed. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I know. It's a strange thing, but um, I'm glad that they, you know, it seemed, it's actually feels kind of excessive for them to have sent me to a therapist, but I'm glad that they did because if for no other reason that learning about meditation at that age, I think that, you know, being raised Catholic, there was this really odd and, and also I don't want to minimize nature. Like I grew up in the woods. And so when people would talk about God, I would be like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Like I feel it. I go to the woods and I feel it. I look up at the sky and I'm like, that's God right up, you know, God's up there, or maybe God just is the sky, you know, like, I don't really know. But then I would go to church and everything was all focused on like sin. And the priest, the priest was like haranguing people for not showing up at church more often. And he was this really creepy seeming dude. And it was really boring. What A creepy priest. That doesn't sound right. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) 
I'm not the first person who's talked about this, but all of the crazy like imagery of Jesus just like dying and bleeding and rotting on the cross. And, you, you know, so as a child who takes who was taking stuff very seriously, there was this weird thing where I was like, there's God and God seems really great. But but also I'm also hearing that God is like mad at me. You know what I mean? And there, you know, late, a little bit later on in my life, I had some experiences that like where I kind of thought I was going to go to hell, which was like a really heavy thing for a kid to have to process. So it was this bizarre thing of like what was essentially nature spirituality trying to reconcile with Catholic theology, which appealed to me, but was very oppressive. And I think maybe uh, meditation was the first introduction into like, it doesn't have to be this way. (laughs) You know what I mean? Whoa, yeah. So you... We're in this one environment mm-hmm. that was all about like ritual and tradition and like the abstract God. And then you were also immersing yourself in nature and like really feeling an awareness of your body. And that must have been like such a tension yeah. for you. Yeah. And when you're talking about the physical world, that was what was really interesting because I was immersed in nature and it was very ravishing, you know. But I, I'm su- seriously nearsighted and they didn't figure that out until first grade. So up until first grade, I was like living in a fish tank, like just in this blurry. I remember when I first put on glasses and was like, oh, my God, wait, what? There's like the world is in it's H, is in 4K. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so there was this like inches of like glass between me and the world, you know, and and my inhaler and my like it was this bizarre thing. And, and not being able to walk very well in this in this town of like jock boys and hunters and, you know, like all of this stuff. It was this bizarre thing of like, how do I fit in physically to the world? And then, of course, Catholicism is very anti-body and, and all, but it, it also is weirdly sublimates it. You know, it's this kind of very beautiful, but kind of perverse theology, you know, for form of sublimation that they do in Catholicism about physicality. Oh, yeah. I, do, I don't remember what literature class this was in in college, but we had this whole section on like how Catholic societies needed circuses and carnivals mm-hmm. so that like you have your pious life yeah. where there's all these rules and structures. And then like once a year, you like go to a tent yeah. outside of town and like eat all the meat and do all the sins just so like everything can stay in balance. Yeah, the release valve. So what was your first instrument? My first instrument was um, saxophone. There was a program at my school where you could, if you wanted to play a band instrument, well, no, that's not true. My first instrument, like so many young kids, was recorder. As you, I don't know if you, did you ever experience that? Oh my God, yeah. I played the recorder as well. And I actually was just um, at my mom's house going through some old childhood stuff. And I found my first recorder and she was like, please, no. We suffered enough in the 90s. I don't need to hear this again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there was a recorder and then there was a thing where they were like, we'll teach you a band instrument for free or for like, we'll we'll rent you for free a band instrument and give you cheap less, like give you lessons. So I, it was the 80s and saxophone was king. And I was like, I wanted to play Careless Whisper and shit like that. You know what I mean? On the sax. <laughs> Do you still know it on the sax? No, no. They, the, the thing was, and this is, 
a fascinating thing about music lessons is that like I think this has changed a lot but back in the day I, they wouldn't ask kids like what do you want to play you know so I like got the sax and they were like okay here's some classical Brahms stuff and I was like I didn't have the presence of mind to be like no I want to play like Careless Whisper or like I want to play like we built this city on rock and roll <laughs> I want to play like these like um, you were born for the city. I want to play all the like 80s sax man stuff, you know? Yeah, I feel yeah. like the idea that you are an individual who has their own tastes and desires was not something that was introduced to us like until our mid 20s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't like classical, but I just never thought, I wasn't ever thinking about it. I was like, whatever, sure, yeah, okay. But like, what about Starship, you know? <laughs> um, so when did you start to think of yourself as a musician or songwriter? Like, at what point well, did you think, oh, music is a thing about me, Will, individual person? So my mother had w always wanted, she loves music, and she's very opinionated about music, and she we had great conversations about music. And she loves to sing, but she had really intense stage fright. So she never really pursued it. There would be little Christmas pageant plays in our town and she would she would always be in them, but she'd never have big roles because she would get too nervous. And she wanted to learn how to play guitar. So she met this guitar teacher and became friends with him. And then they became, it was a, you know, he his wife was also a musician and they became kind of couple friends because they had kids the same age. They were professional musicians and they were, um, that was all they did. They had a sort of had self-released several records of their own kind of like Christian folk music stuff that was very good. They were very good musicians. And then they also kind of paid the bills playing like Renaissance instrumentals and stuff, you know, at a, at an art gallery or something, that kind of thing, a wedding. And they had a son who was one year older than me. Which, you know, when you're younger and you have a friend who's one year older than you, it's like, they're a rock star, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was like, this guy is my hero. And he was a really amazing musician and he was writing songs. And so he, just being around him and his family, they were like hippies and they were really into like, there's this group called the Incredible String Band from the 60s. They were like psychedelic folk. I had never considered that music could be like that you know i just grown up with like my parents singer songwriter records and whatever was on 80s radio and then i heard these like 12 minute long songs with sitar and like allusions to like celtic mythology and all of this stuff and it seemed like more like it was like magic spells you know than um than music and it just blew my mind that that was like a thing you could do and my friend was really good at writing. He was very precocious. And so I was like, I need to be writing songs too. And by that point, I was playing piano, still being taught classical piano, but I had figured out you can go buy a fake book and you can like play all the Neil Young songs or like the Bob Dylan songs or whatever. And playing piano was fun, but then I started playing my mom's nylon string guitar. And I just realized how much like, easier it is to be up and running with a guitar it's like really easy to just like start writing with a guitar compared to piano i, I feel for me it was anyway so um and i you know, oh yeah I, I feel the exact same way like my early instrument was the harp 
And I always felt like there was a much shorter on-ramp with guitar than there was on harp or maybe piano, where like with the guitar, you can fairly quickly learn like three or four chords and like start to write. But then from there, it's really, really hard to become a good guitarist. Um, but it's but you can get up and running quickly. Exactly. And you know, Lizzie, I actually was into harp too, which is really interesting. Yeah, because... What? Yeah. Well, for me, what it was, was that the, incre- the incredible string band were Scottish. And I was like, oh, this must be like Celtic music, even though it's not really. Um, but for some reason that I, I don't fully understand... I just imprinted really, really hard on Celtic music in in, um, in high school, which is like the dorkiest thing to be into in high school. But I was really, really, it really spoke to me. I don't know if it was like growing up in nature. I don't know if it's that there's some family um, background there. I don't know what, but like I was just really wanted to learn harp. So I did rent a harp. There was a music store and I rented a harp and I futzed around with it a little bit for, you know, for like a year but yeah what kind of harp did you have it was like a celtic like irish harp like a like a probably it was like two octaves or something like that's my guess well if you're ever in new york city and in the need of a harp you know where to find me i've been thinking i kind of want to like learn harp again because it is really beautiful and especially as an adult i've come to appreciate so much more like as i've been exposed to so many more things that people do with harp I'm like, oh, man, I kind of want to, like, take it back up again. But it feels like quite an uh, outlay of cash to get a good harp. Yeah, there's really no getting around that. That is true. (laughs) Yeah, the annoying thing is that a crappy guitar can sound great, Mm -hmm. but a crappy harp is never going to sound good. Like, you have to have a nice harp. And it's, like, such a... It's such a simple instrument, like, construction-wise, that it's, like, yeah, you want it to be awesome. You know, you can't cover up the flaws or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, so I I think that you're right about guitar. It was like, it's really easy to like sort of play a Bob Dylan song on guitar after like a week of messing, of learning a few chords. And that was really, in high school, that was really all I needed to be doing. You know, I just wanted to start, because I had a lot I wanted to say, I guess, and I just needed to put some chords to it. So in high school, that's when you met your future bandmates, correct? Zach Thomas and Seth Warren? That's correct. Yep. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have this fantasy that like, I'm going to start a band with my high school besties and we're going to make it big. And you are one of the few people that actually did it. Um, You ended up making nine studio albums, seeing the world and receiving all kinds of acclaim as Ockerville River. But back in high school... Like, these were just your buddies. So what was the early signal to you that these are the friends with whom I'm going to make my adult life? Well, you know, as I was saying, going through junior high and elementary school, it was a bunch of, it was a lot of, like, athletics were king. And it was, like, very, like, a lot of bullying. And then when I left that school... That was when I went to the school that my mom and dad taught at. And there was still a really heavy focus on athletics at that school. And there was still a real, a lot of like bullying and bullshit that went on and prep school bullshit, you know, like rich, shitty kids. But like, there was also like a really robust arts and theater program. And there was a, um, there were cool artsy kids there. And there was a, theater teacher 
who had just come out and he had just gotten out of a marriage and he this is my perspective on what was going on he had thrown himself and mm. yeah he had thrown himself into the theater department with like you know i think this was like the thing in his life that was the most exciting thing to him and he took us all as theater kids <clears throat> really really seriously and there happened to be some really good actors at my school so the theater department at my school became really incredible and that that kind of radiated out to all the other creative kids all the kids who were into music all the kids who were into theater into painting um there was this there became for a brief moment at my school this really beautiful vivid supportive subculture of the cl- of the students who were like really yeah yeah it was really really great and and really and and for me it was like gasping at fresh air after being cooped up you know in a mine shaft for much of my schooling um so i formed all kinds of different bands and i acted in plays and i did paintings and i wanted to be a filmmaker and we had this whole kind of community thing going on and yeah it was really interesting there was even this like woman down the street who kind of like purported to commune with like nature spirits and she told uh, me and my friend group that we were like reincarnations of some traveling like uh troop that had been around way in the past are you kidding me yeah that is yeah very cool when you're a kid and you're told that stuff it's like it was really powerful thing to hear so those were that was a really amazing experience and then what happened was that I went away to college and I lost that friend group. And without that friend group, I crumbled. I had a really I had a really difficult college experience. I didn't have any of that and I just felt completely adrift and I had never been out of my town. You know what I mean? I suddenly I'm in English. I was oh, I was drifting about, but I settled on English just because I didn't know what else to do. And I hadn't really put together that like as much as I talk about all this create creativity, just without the support of my friends, I lost sight of the fact that this was a thing that was really in the realm of possibility for me to do. So I had my dad in my ear telling me I had to like pick a career path. And I was just sort of like, I don't fucking know. I'm not good at anything. Every job I get, I get fired from. And, you know, nobody seems to like me. And like, this is really difficult, you know? Um, and then finally in senior year, I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to, let's, I'm, I want to start a band, you know, like that was kind of the thing I, I continued to write and do film stuff. But like, that was the thing that because I didn't have any friends, it was really easy to just like play guitar in my room. Yeah. Playing Um, guitar is definitely one of the activities of people that don't have a lot of friends. Yeah. Or money or, you know what I mean? I just sort of, yeah, you're not exactly going to be like producing a film or putting on a theater production, but you can sit alone in your room. Yeah, and write exactly. Songs. Exactly. I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. So I was playing guitar and I was writing songs and I was like, these, I feel like these are good, you know, like maybe I'm crazy. I don't have anybody else to tell me that they're good, but I feel like they're good. And I was still in good contact with my friends. One of them was in Austin already. And I knew Austin was like a music town. So I was like, you know, let's um, I'm going to go live with you in Austin. And then I convinced my friend Seth, who was in Wisconsin, to come down. And that's how we for and I convinced some other friends too, actually, who didn't end up in the band, but were like our roommates and stuff. 
And that's how the the original version of Ockerville River started. It was really a continuation of that high school, sort of passionate high school dream. Did you ever see, you know, Bottle Rocket, the Wes Anderson movie? No, I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking about. I remember it, it came out around that time when I convinced everybody. And, and it's about like um, Owen Wilson plays. I get them always confused, but I think it was Owen Wilson is this guy who's like obsessed with wanting to be a safe, like a bank robber. And his friends just go along with it because they they care about him and he's really passionate about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that that's what I remember watching that movie and it made me uncomfortable because I was like, oh, that's me. It's like I'm this guy who's like has this really intense, naive, like really, really strong desire to do something. And I'm like almost irritating in my persistence about it. And my friends don't know what they're going to do, so they're just sort of going along with my idea. (laughs) For someone who claims to not have had a lot of friends, you do seem to have this track record of being the magnetic person that brings other people together. Mm. And it kind of reminds me Mm. of one of the most interesting motifs on your new album, Nothing Special, which is the holy Mm -hmm. man. There are images of the holy man, maybe the guru. Do you feel like deep inside you, there's like a guru Mm. or a cult leader or a, a magnetic leader of some kind that like draws you to this image? Well, that's a real complicated question. I'll try to unravel it as best I can. Um, what I just told you about the getting my friends together was sort of the self-deprecating version. I've come to realize, and I feel weird saying this, which is maybe why I said the bottle rocket thing, but I am good at motivating people. Um, I I know what I like want and what I like, and I like working with people a lot, and I really like bringing out the best in people, and I like... I feel that because um, you're not always like remunerated for art that like the very least you can do is make it be really fun. So I try to make things be really fun. And I like to think that, that, but I also like do, am a person who builds castles in the sky. You know what I mean? Like, so I have a tendency to sweep people up in my quixotic little fantasy ideas. And I think maybe sometimes they walk away going, wow, that was way more work than I thought. And like that, I maybe I don't want to do something like that again. But a lot of the time they do come back, you know, and it took me a long time to realize that that's a skill I have. So, so, so for whatever reason, that is something I do seem to have, I guess. Holy Man is an interesting, I mean, it's one of my favorite songs that I've written, but it's a pretty nuanced song, I think. I mean, I would say that Holy Man we've spent a lot of time talking about spirituality and for me, especially as I progressed further in my life and as I wanted to go deeper with my work, spirituality became more important to me. Um, And especially as I became less wanting to be in a party vein of my life, you know what I mean? And and still wanting to go deeper and, and have a, close um, relationship with like the, the mysterious and the numinous and the mystical without sort of um, in like messing with my consciousness too much. But Holy Man to some degree is about the dark side of that. 
you know, Holy Man is is about is a little bit about the allure of that, and it's a little bit about how it can be weaponized. Um, because yeah, I mean, in our culture right now, I feel like people are really uncomfortable with the idea that someone could have power over someone else, and like deservedly so. Like we're just we no longer are okay with this idea that like one person has the knowledge and the wisdom and other people are going to be influenced by them. But at the same time, we're like looking for spirituality and we're looking for leadership. Well, I mean, I would say that I think our culture, there's a, there's a growing awareness in our culture that what we're doing is not working. And I think that you even different sides of the political spectrum feel it, you know, whether or not they want to articulate it, they feel that what we're doing is not working. And, you know, my feeling about it, there's a spiritual void you know, that we, we have like lost touch with our connection with nature, for example, and like compassion and the understanding of our, that we're not separate from each other. Um, and all of that's sort of my feeling about it. Right. But because there's this really intense spiritual hunger and because we live in a system that's like sort of corrupted where everything is for sale, it's a pretty easy for people to take a hold of that sense that we're lost and this desire for, um, belonging and for meaning and to use it to uh, to get something for themselves you know when you have to reckon with you have this image of um sort of this spiritual connection to the world and you imagine that everything is sweetness and light and that nothing that's going to lead to this world where nothing bad is going to happen but the reality is that the world is very very mysterious and fraught through with suffering and pain and unfairness and to surrender yourself to the mystery of the world means to have to accept some of that. And that's really frightening, too. Um, so I think, you know, I have a tendency with a song like Evidence to want to write something that's very cosmic and healing and, and beautiful and reassuring. And, and I think that it's good to have a song like Holy Man that also kind of shows that all of this stuff that I'm being that I'm talking about can be used in a dark, twisted, sick way as well. You know what I mean? Yes. And it seems like you sequence the album with that journey and story in mind. I kind of want to go back and re-listen with that whole journey in yes. mind. Yeah. And I think about that sequence stuff a lot, you know, like what, where, where I put things and stuff like that. But I also think that Holy Man is a song I feel very deeply. So when I talk about how Holy Man is dark and is sort of has a disturbing element to me. I feel like there's also something very sensual and powerful and magnetic about that song for me. And that's sort of what's happening. The protagonist in that song is that they're being pulled along, you know, um, I feel the many yield to the one, you know, like that line is really interesting because it feels very, it feels very spiritual, but it also is sort of a fascist, um, sentiment too. Yeah, that mm -hmm. reminds me of. Have you ever read Steppenwolf, the Hermann Hesse novel mm. about mm -hmm. when he, the protagonist, kind of goes down underground into the magic theater, and it's this like dark and terrifying, but like sensuous world where everything is connected. That that feels like the same thing you're talking about here. And I felt like that was an important thing to put on the record because I don't want to come across as some kind of a holy man. I don't want to come across as some kind of a wise person who has arrived at some, 
And that's an interesting thing because so much of this album is me just enacting the thing of trying to grapple with life and trying to understand my own life and getting to something that feels nice. And then I have to talk about it in an interview and it makes it sound as if I've arrived at some wisdom. And I'm like, no, I really have no wisdom to share. I mean, the best part of me is in the album. You're getting the rest. (laughs) When you're talking to me, you're getting the rest. When you're listening to the album, you're getting the best. (laughs) I want to ask you about your voice. And we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. And you've said in interviews that people have given you shit over the years about your voice and that it's taken a lot of work, uh, like self-work, to push out that inner critic and that voice that says, like, your voice doesn't sound good. So I want to talk about the recording of the vocals on this album, especially the song Marathon Girl, as an example. It's a really tender performance. Um, It's kind of high in your range. It's really exposed in the mix. What was your approach to singing that song? And what did you do to get yourself emotionally to the place where you were ready to record that vocal. It's funny that you talk about that one song, because I sang that song differently from all the other songs on the record. I did the vocals at home um, because I wanted to, because I've struggled with vocals so much. I've, I've never been very good with pitch. I've gotten a lot better, way better than I used to be. But that was a big part of why people gave me shit. And I have a very specific acquired taste kind of voice, and it took me a while to grow into it. But, like, I've certainly found a lot in my life, like, it's that same thing you're talking about. Like, when you're pushing too hard and trying too hard, it can be bad. But, like, the answer is not to be completely lazy. Like, there's some element as a singer where you're sort of, like, present but not pushing too hard. And it's hard to do with people around, you know? So... I I often, I did all of these vocals, I think all of them, at home. I sang Marathon Girl in the closet of my bedroom. I set up a microphone in the closet with all my coats and shirts and stuff like that. What mic did you use? It was a uh, Sony um, uh, C37, I think. It was like a old, an older microphone that John Congleton had lent me, um, the producer. and Not me writing it down. Yeah, really nice microphone. And, um, and actually I did three vocals on it, singing to the wrong side by mistake. And then <laughs> we realized that I had it backwards and I had to re-sing them. No, but, I know, no. I know. I love it. Um, but, uh, it was very nice of him to lend me that. So that's how I did almost all the vocals on the record was with that microphone, but I went into my closet. I don't know why I did that. I just, something told me to sing it in the closet. So I, I think I just wanted it to, maybe it's like when you're a kid and you're hiding under some coats on the couch and pretending to be invisible. Maybe that song makes me feel that feeling. And I wanted to, I don't know why I I didn't have a reason why it wasn't that I wanted the vocal to be super dead necessarily, but I went into the closet and I sang in the closet. Well, yeah, it's a very special and tender performance. Well, that song was recorded, was written during the pandemic, my next door neighbor had, um, she had had a difficult time uh, and she went home to her family and she had a dog that was not doing so well. And she asked us if we knew any people who were good with dogs and we recommended our dog trainer and she had our dog trainer come and live with her dog. And while our dog trainer was living there, it was determined that the dog needed to be put down. And so I have, I love my dog so much. And I think about 
how he's not going to be here forever and, uh, a lot every day. And I wanted to sort of confront that. And I didn't want my dog trainer to deal with this by herself. So I went downstairs and was there when they put down this dog, Eli, and was like looking into his eyes. And I wrote Marathon Girl right after that. I think of Marathon Girl as like a, a love song to like whatever it was that was in his eyes that I saw disappear. <laughs> I know that sounds really um, sad, but it's actually kind of like... No, I'm just getting emotional because I don't know if you know my co-host Cindy Howes, um, but her amazing dog mm. Willis just passed away. We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast and... There is just something so special and intimate about the the tenderness and the kindness that we allow ourselves to feel around dogs. And and that's what that made me think about. Well, I think of dogs are individual dogs are special, but there's something so eternal about the spirit, like what's in dogs in general, that sweet loving quality, but like also just that spark, that spark that's in things. You know, where you just sort of see it. You kind of, you see a little hummingbird like land on your bird feeder and you go, you can see that little spark, that little thing that that is why they're there. And yeah, it's the spark of life. Yeah. And you realize like that bird is alive. And in the same way, I am alive. Like just as there's life out there, there's life in me as well. And really, all I am is just another expression of that thing. We're all just these little points of like consciousness, just sort of fl- floating around like fireflies in the night. And when when that thing leaves, I'm just going to fall down like a like a side of beef. You know what I mean? And like it's not going to be there anymore. Be- but it, the thing the thing is always going to be there because it's always going through everything. And I think of Marathon Girl had that thing of like wanting so much to to answer that searching beautiful pushing trying quality of like the life just wanting to be itself and eventually having to go um and i and so i think that maybe that was had something to do with the vocal too and why i I kind of brought that energy to the vocal well despite its title Nothing Special is such a gorgeous album. I think our listeners are really going to be blessed by it. Thank you for talking all about the new album with me. And now I have one last request. Will Chef, are you willing to do a lightning round? Just like about 10 questions, answer from the gut. Don't think too much about it. Just skip a question if you want to, but just go. You down? Sure. What color is your soul? Ah, Well, you know, I was talking to my niece about this recently and she was really stymied that I said this because it was favorite color stuff. And she was like, I was telling her that my favorite colors are are orange and brown, which I think is like kind of New England, you know, like fall and things like that. Whoa, I guessed that. That's what I was going to say. But I I feel like those fall foliage, those really, really warm fall foliage colors are are where it always comes back to for me. Yeah, I knew your soul was orange. Okay, what was the first album you bought with your own money? The first album I bought with my own money, I'm not sure. But I remember really clearly that for one year for my birthday, I got Sgt. Pepper um, on cassette from my parents. The two big birthday presents I remember are Thriller 
and then probably two or three years later, Sgt. Pepper, both cassettes. And those were kind of like moments where you're like, this is my music, this is my tape, I can go into my room and listen to it on my Walkman. So those two were big for me. But like, whatever I first bought with my own money was probably something really stupid. I mean, not stupid, but it was probably like Motley Crue or something like that. No disrespect to Motley Crue, though. Yeah, it might have been like Aerosmith or something. I don't know, who knows? Some, some like hairband. What is your least favorite household chore? Uh, I'm not a fan of folding laundry because my my fingers get all like dry. Dries out my hands. Ugh, me too. I'm like always putting on lotion in the middle of a load. Yeah, I know. Me too. Yeah, I don't like that. Which fiction writer do you think would make the best folk musician? You know, whenever you read like a Thomas Pynchon book and he'll like lapse into lyrics and you think these are terrible. I always think these are terrible lyrics. What do you think? You think just because you're a genius fiction writer, you can be a songwriter? Um, okay, so that's the answer to what was going to be my next question, which is which fiction writer do you think is would be the worst folk musician? Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> I mean, I love his writing, but like... I don't know. I, I, how about, um, you know, like Raymond Carver, because it's very simple, you know? Okay, what is the best age to be? Ah, oh, jeez, I don't know. Probably old. Like, in terms of, like, when you look at... Like, my parents are in their 70s, and they're really, really happy. Like, they seem happier than they ever were, you know what I mean? I mean, it's not awesome to have cre- a creaky, you know, ailing body and all of that, but, like, it feels like you get pretty happy around that time if you did some stuff right what is your favorite alice coltrane record oh taria sings the the cassette she did in the ashram where she it's just like her and a synthesizer and an electric piano and it's a lot of like um kirtan stuff that she's singing by herself hell yeah this is a basic folk alice coltrane endorsement which would you prefer as a friend a sheep or a goat Oh, probably a goat. I don't. I feel really, I feel really um, drawn to goats. I, I like. I mean, I don't eat um, beef because I. When I was doing the "Don't Move Back to LA" video, I made friends with a cow, <laughs> and I was just like, I love this cow's vibe so much. I can't do it anymore. And yeah, there's just there was just this like, I just felt like we had an understanding. Like it just, I felt like we, I could relate. Um, and I feel like goats, I could, this might be unfair, but it feels like there's a little bit more going on upstairs with a goat than with a sheep. Uh, okay. Rude. Our sheep listeners are all about to write in angrily on Twitter. So Cindy and I can get ready for that. Also, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I haven't raised sheep or goats, so. But I do have a fantasy about like, you know, one day having a goat or something or a donkey or something like that. What is one song you wish you had written? Uh, Candy Says by Lou Reed. That's a song that I just like. That's one of those like you always cry, you always feel uh, an out of body thing. Yeah, that song for me uh, is is like a song that I'm like, did a person write this song or you know? Um, yeah, that's a great one. Will, it has been so cool talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on Basic Folk. And everybody, go out and buy Will's new solo album, Nothing Special. Thank you. You had the best questions. It was really, you asked me all the things I always think about. So it was very cool. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Focus on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Find us there. You can also look for us on the SiriusXM app. 
Search for Basic Folk. You can go to our website, basicfolk.com, or you can listen wherever you get podcasts. All right. Thanks for checking out this episode. Please send it to a friend um, that you think would like it. Uh, Send it to your mom, your mail carrier, um, your local coffee shop barista, your local librarian. Oh my gosh. I bet librarians would love us. Don't you think? They would. Yeah. We are always moderate in volume and informative. Mm, So great. Um, All right. You know what? We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.